When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, it's been an exciting week, hasn't it? Even during an international break, Manchester United have been in the headlines primarily for Cristiano Ronaldo. The Portugal captain became the all-time leading goalscorer in men's international football with two goals for his country against Ireland and was released by his manager early to allow him to arrive in Manchester on Thursday ahead of a small period of isolation before returning to Carrington on Tuesday morning. Elsewhere at the club, the WSL season has begun. Mark Skinner's United women's side got off to a winning start. And we talk in this episode to Goal.com correspondent Amy Ruzkai about that game, this refreshed United women team, and what this weekend meant for the Women's Super League with games shown live on Sky Sports and the BBC. After our chat with Amy, we'll be hearing from Kane Smith, who'll be a regular guest on the show this season. Kane has looked into what's behind Mason Greenwood's good recent form, how he'll fit into the team after Ronaldo's arrival and what options United have got for playing with Cristiano Ronaldo. And finally, once we've enjoyed the insight of Amy and Kane, Jack and I will consider a new future for international football, compare the United squads of 2009 and 2021 and look ahead to Saturday's match against Newcastle, the potential second debut of Cristiano Ronaldo. If you'd like to rush ahead to any point in the show, check out the timestamps in the description below to find out where to go. And if you enjoy this episode, it'd be great if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or share it on Twitter. Cheers. Okay, we're joined by Amy Ruskai to talk about the Women's Super League. Manchester United kicking things off on Friday night, starting their WSL campaign with a 2-0 win against Reading at least. Sports Village and Amy was there and reporting on the game in a busy WSL weekend, which a historic one actually, in terms of broadcasting, because it, the game's shown on live on Sky Sports with excellent coverage and free to air on BBC as well, the United game on Sky. And Amy, you wrote a piece after the game, uh, a day or so after, talking about life after press and Heath, how Manchester United are adapting to a new look attack without the US stars uh, for goal. And it was a good start for United and for Mark Skinner, who's come in and... and kind of really embraced the club and is is talking a good game and we'll see if he can walk it as well. Yeah, I think it was a good first game as well because it wasn't like baptism by fire. It wasn't Chelsea or Man City or Arsenal and, you know, straight under the microscope have they got what it takes. Um, it was a nice sort of steady game because it was a tricky one for them last season. I mean, you know, they lost already in last season in a pretty um, disappointing way. So it was a nice one to sort of start with engage where United were at at an early stage. And um, like I wrote uh, the day after was, was sort of like the fact that Man United lost quite a lot of attacking players over the summer, Press, Heath, James, Sigsworth, Ross. Like they, they lost a lot of depth and they only brought in one striker in Martha Thomas. Um, but it was nice that you got some early glimpses at how Skinner will sort of combat that because he played Ella Toon as a false nine and you know there were a lot of there were a lot of players probably in that squad creative midfielders that can play that. So it was a different sort of um approach and yeah, it was quite interesting to, to hear him talk about it after he's yeah, he's very very in depth and he speaks about that sort of thing. And yeah, it was interesting to watch as well. Yeah, and Mar- Martha Thomas signed from West Ham, uh, started on the bench 
and Elatoon false nine and involved in in both goals. So clever from from him and from her. She played very well, and as you were saying in your piece didn't have that many touches on the ball but was very efficient when she did and I think that's yeah real positive for United we finished one point off the Champions League places last season although it wasn't quite as dramatic as it sounds because it it was kind of clear for the last few weeks uh, before the season's end that Arsenal were going to get that third place and not United but have have United got enough to sort that one point gap out or have the others got even better obviously Heath now signing for Arsenal I think it's it's quite early to say. It's going to be interesting to see. I think it's because, I mean, a lot of people have, have spoken about Everton mm. this summer and looked at the signings they've brought in and they also had the continuity with Willie Kirk still being the manager, um, whereas Man United have got new manager, new players, um, you know, lots of sort of new things to adjust to. And so it's a bit it's a bit like, well, you know, which, which one's going to be, you know, more of an advantage is it the is it Man United or Everton and Everton over the weekend lost 4-0 to Man City and, and looked pretty off it so I think it'll be I think we'll have to wait and see until Man U play you know a City or Arsenal or mm-hmm. Chelsea because Arsenal were the weaker of the three last year and they were fantastic yesterday at the Emirates so um, I think that'll be the, the sort of yardstick and it might even be a bit harsh if it's an early yardstick you know it might be later in the season because I think that the league is going to be more competitive this year I think less you know teams that didn't take points basically teams outside that four um, I think will take some points off the, the big four more so than ever before this year so it might not come down to those games as much as um, it did last year and it might be yeah, I think it's going to be really interesting to see how it unfolds. Yeah, because I remember when United lost in, I can't remember what month, uh, the whole of last season seems to go by in a blur uh, in my memory now. But United lost a, <laughs> a few weeks before the end of the season. It might have even been that Reading game. And from that point, it was kind of obvious they wouldn't climb back into the top three because you just couldn't see Arsenal losing any of their games because they were too strong and the same applied for City and Chelsea. Whereas this season, there are some stronger sides. As as for the WSL as a whole, it was a good weekend, I think. Attendances weren't so strong, which was a shame compared to, uh, what was it, 2019 when there were those huge attendances for United City at the Etihad and the North London Derby. But in terms of broadcasting, it really was... Uh, it, it was brilliant to see. Yeah, and I think that was something I was really curious about was how Sky were going to do it because um, I don't know if you know anybody listening is a cricket fan, but you know the the way that Sky did the hundred for the women this summer was was really sort of professional. And one of the things with women's sports being on you know these these sort of channels is that it can be quite patronising and sort of like oh. Do you know, she tried to she tried to save it, but she didn't want to shame. But she tried. But it's more it's more analytical. You know, you've got the tactics board out. You've got you know the sort of analysis. You've got the hour build up, and it's been shown as a it's they've put on a proper show. They've you know they're doing it properly, and yeah, it's been like I say, I've been at, I've been at a few games, so I've only got glimpses of it mm. um, on the telly. But it's looked good from from what I've seen. It's been a, a good weekend the way that they've started. Uh, going forward for United, it's Leicester away next Sunday in what will be a, it's a very busy weekend for the club, all four teams playing. Obviously, most of the headlines on Saturday will be focused around the men's team and and the return of Ronaldo. But Sunday, 2pm is Leicester away, if I remember correctly, on the FA player. Um, Onabatye scored a, a cracking goal against Reading 
and she was uh, I'm trying to think if she was my one standout last season but I, I loved watching her last season I thought she was consistent for United and a really exciting player do you think she will be again this season one of the key ones? Yeah I think so I think she was probably the best fullback in the league last year um, she was so good so consistent um, I think you know like you said she's hopefully like an inverted winger I think it was the first game of the season against Chelsea last year and she was she was playing on the, the left and just cutting inside and it was yeah, yeah. you don't see too much in, in the women's game and that sort of took like I was quite impressed by it and it was um, she played so well and she, you know, she could play on either side and play so well and she's just it's not only the fact that she's attacking though like she's so attacking she's brilliant you can see that in the goal she scored but like 1v1 she's so good defensively I think that's what impressed me the most about her because you get so many attacking fullbacks nowadays but the defensive side of the game I don't think anybody won more tackles than her last year she won she was top for some sort of stat like that I remember including it because she was in my team in the season I think she won the most tackles in the league or of a defender at least which is like you know she's playing for a team that finished fourth you expect that from you know whoever finished yeah. towards the bottom but yeah I was really 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 impressed with her and I, yeah like you say I think she'll have another good season I, I really do and Leicester have come up from the championship but a really impressive funding of their women's team they've got their own training ground now which is different to well pretty much every club United have finally moved into Carrington but Leicester <laughs> what what do you think they'll be are, are they kind of the new United from three years ago or two years ago expecting to immediately do big things or will it just be about settling in I think it'll I think time will tell I think you know the back end of last year the, the last game that Leicester and Man United played last season was Leicester beating Man United in the FA Cup um, and they were really good that day They've had a bit of a player turnover, as expected when a team gets promoted. Um, they've obviously got Jess Sigsworth and Abby McManus from um, from Man United, and they've got a couple of other like ex-Man United players in there as well, youngsters. So that might make it a bit a bit tasty. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think I think that their aim is to very much be like a mid-table team this year. I think what's going to be interesting, um, somebody else pointed this out to me actually, the fact they're playing all their, most of their home games at the King Power, um, how that, you know, that's going to, you know, obviously like an immaculate playing surface could benefit them so much when they play against, you know, scrappier teams. But mm. if they're welcoming a, a City or an Arsenal or a Chelsea down there, they're going to love that pitch. Yeah. So um, that'll be interesting to see. But I think, yeah. I'm try- it's it's going to be it's going to be difficult to think because a lot of the teams towards the bottom of the league last year have strengthened and if Leicester had come in maybe last season maybe yeah you could see them mid table but I think the way that people have strengthened it'll be a bit more difficult I don't think they'll be in trouble this year definitely yeah uh, so United on the FA Player this Sunday and then the weekend after is uh, and there might is there, a, is there a break between them but then the next game is at uh, Chelsea and that, that'll be on BBC free to air which would be brilliant uh, love free to air football in whatever format at whatever level um, Amy thank you for joining us and for more from Amy you can find her stuff on Goal or on Twitter um, anything you're writing this week that you want to plug? No I mean I'm at Manchester City I don't know if I can say it on this podcast this weekend, Champions League. So yeah. maybe nothing of interest for this audience just yet, but they will be. <laughs> Good. All right. We'll plug Amy's Twitter in the, in the description and you can follow her there. Thank you for joining us. No worries. Thank you for having me. 
Right, let's run through the international break so far quickly before we chat to Kane. Seven goals from international red so far at the time of recording. Jesse Lingard scored two for England in a 4-0 win against Andorra. Harry Maguire headed home a Luke Shaw cross against Hungary. Ronaldo scored two to become the all-time leading men's international goalscorer against Ireland. Bruno Fernandes also scored for Portugal a penalty off the bench against Qatar. And Anthony Martial found his first goal for France in five years with an equaliser against Ukraine in a good game last week. And at youth level, Anthony Langer scored twice for Sweden under 21. He's having a good season so far and hopefully we'll start to see that in the United first team soon as well. Kane Smith is with us now. First of all, Kane, this will be the first of a few appearances hopefully on the show for you. So do you want to give us a 30 second introduction to who you are and what you're up to at the moment? Hey, Harry, um, I'm the editor, admin and writer at United District. I focus on all things Man United, opinion work and quite a bit of tactical analysis work, previous work with total football analysis, some work with uh, breaking the lines and yeah, a lot of analysis work, a lot of opinion work and I'm happy to be on. Yeah. And that's kind of what you're here to do, to give us, uh, to, to take a look at one issue every few weeks and, and delve a bit deeper than we often can on the podcast. And you've been taking a look at Mason Greenwood this week after three goals in three for the 19, soon to be 20 year old. A great start to the season for him. And you've been taking a look at what's behind that run of form. Yeah, well, when I was thinking of what to uh, look at, it was it was quite clear that Greenwood was going to have to be the player that was focused on. Uh, yeah, like you said, a great start to the season. Um, one thing that I think we noticed so far is that his um, brilliant finishing is is back on show. Maybe we saw it at the back end of last season where he he scored uh, six goals in his last eight Premier League matches. He found it, but maybe in the earlier stages of that season, he un- underperformed his XG quite a bit. I noticed with with uh, the three goals, which um, he scored in the opening three matches, the XG expected goals um, of those three shots was just uh, 0.24. For the people that obviously don't know XG very much, 0.24, that's um, a chance of maybe one, one low chance goal and he's got three out of it. So, yeah, I wanted to first focus on the three goals which he scored solely. I think against Leeds and Wolves, we saw proper finishes, what what you expect from Mason Greenwood. Low driven shots into the corner, into the corners, forcing a keeper mistake against Wolves. I'll focus on those two firstly, um, if you don't mind. Um, sure. Although there was differences between Leeds and Wolves where against Wolves he received it wide, drove at the fullback, probably something we're more accustomed to seeing with Greenwood, yeah. driving at the fullback, using those step overs to uh, manipulate the ball, get that half a yard and then strike low, hard, and it makes it very difficult for the keeper. Um, as you've seen against Wolves, the goalkeeper made the mistake, but it was a forced yeah. mistake, I'd say. Um, it's very hard to get the power, but also make sure that shot is low, that the keeper, it's very difficult to get down when the shot is that powerful and low. And uh, we saw the keeper make a mistake, but against Leeds, it was a bit different. We saw a really impressive run, something, one thing that stuck out to me was his, was his movement throughout the game. It was really impressive. Yeah. And it was it was impressive for his goal as well. First of all, um, he peeled out to the to the right uh, to the left wing, sorry, where um, it actually opened up a bit of space for Pogba to receive in the centre. But it also what what happened was it made a really big gap between the two lead centre backs. And what was more, what was impressive to see was you could tell that Greenwood 
done this on purpose because then as soon as Pogba gets the ball, he attacks the space between the yeah. centre backs. It's just little things like that, which I think have really, um, obviously he still needs to keep improving his movement, but I think we've seen developments definitely in the past uh, six to eight months. And then like it was with Wolves against Leeds, um, Greenwood uh, ran past his man, really powerful, took the shot across goal. I don't think uh, he could have placed it more in the bottom corner. And uh, I think it was Solskjaer after the game claimed that that goal was kind of like Greenwood turning into a man or like uh, that was a man, not a boy, yeah. saying something yeah. along those lines. And um, I completely agree with that. I think uh, it was a powerful run. We've seen sometimes Greenwood not quite have the power in his runs, maybe uh, some points in the last season, but really powerful run yeah. for that goal. Um, and then I'll move across to the Southampton goal, if, uh, if that's okay. because. Sure. A little bit of a different goal, not a great strike. It, yeah. was, it wasn't brilliant, but what was more impressive, I think, was the little movement in the box before. Like I said, his movement's in, improving, and this was just a subtle thing, but I, I uh, looked at it, and it was when Pogba and Bruno, I think it was, played the little one-two. Greenwood has, had a marker on him. And then just as the balls came in, coming into the box, you've seen him check his run, just check into the space. And then uh, the ball came to him. And if you look in the box, he's just, there's four or five Southampton players around him. And he is just in the space in the box and it allows him to get his shot away. So it, that's, I'd say, although Leeds and Wolves, both of the goals that we saw in those games, is something we're maybe accustomed to seeing of Greenwood. Uh, great, great shots into the corner of the goal. But it was nice to see in Southampton, even though it was a, yeah. a poor finish by his standards, that there was actually some impressive box movement from him to create the space to get the chance. Yeah. And you mentioned the XG earlier, and that was a concern for a lot of people involved in, uh, or who use that stat to, to predict future development was a concern for, for a lot of those people looking at Mason in his first season at United when he exploded that he couldn't keep that up because all of his finishes were brilliant, but there were not enough chances compared to goals. And I think that Southampton goal is a, uh, is a, is a positive in that, in that regard, given it's a bit more of a scruffy one. And it's something that Solskjaer has spoken about a lot. And uh, he scored his first header for the United first team in the preseason against Everton as well, which he was very pleased about. In terms of movement, obviously there's been a lot made of his tutelage or the tutelage of Edinson Cavani and that will certainly have helped and I think that's definitely notable I think his Leeds game was the best one in terms of his movement a really mature performance as you've spoken about but Ronaldo coming in and there was a great clip of Ronaldo as he was breaking the uh, all-time men's international goal scoring record just I think it was about eight seconds or so but it's been shared on Twitter just the camera focused on him in the build-up to that goal and you just saw that that darting run the the you saw Ronaldo make a run, not get the ball and then kind of pull himself back, drag himself back as if he was on a bungee cord from this one position in the box and then make the run again. And it, it was a it was a lovely insight into, well, one of the best movers in world football and certainly Greenwood will learn from that as well. But Ronaldo coming in will have an impact on Greenwood, both in terms of learning, but also his position. Yeah, yeah. Um, I really like how you touched on that goal because I saw that as well. And it, it was for any young strikers it was kind of like the perfect example of what to do when you're in the box uh he made the first run on the blind side of the of the defender uh it was Coleman I think wasn't it and uh ball didn't go to him he didn't 
straight back into straight back into a position on the blind side of the defender makes the move in front it was it was literally a perfect goal really uh for a striker yeah touching on greenwood's position obviously we've been really impressed with him through the middle he obviously he started against leeds and wolves through the middle two wins out of two and in fact it was the game against southampton where he he was starting on the right that he actually scored the striker's goal and um yeah You'd expect that you, we are going to see some more of him in the middle throughout the season. But um, obviously, with Ronaldo coming in, as well as ha- having um, Edinson Cavani in our ranks, you'd expect that a lot of game time will be spent on that right flank, which I don't think is a bad thing. I think that you definitely want to see him get some game time through that middle, as a lot of people believe that that's his long-term position. But especially the goal, I, I, I'd like... Focusing on the goal against Wolves, um, you see how clinical we can be when one-on-one against a fullback, especially considering Jadon Sancho. He looks like he's comfortable off the left and the right, but I don't think we can expect him to hit the ground running straight away. His debut wasn't wasn't the best, and uh, I don't think it was uh, bad per se, but I, I, I want to go back to where Jaden came off and uh, Greenwood uh, stayed on the pitch, because I think that that was quite a big moment for Greenwood. I know it's kind of easy to keep the big big money signing on, even if he's not having a great game, but it, I think, it, I think yeah. it shows that Solskjaer does trust Greenwood to start games on that right flank or on the flanks ahead of players. I thought also... Yeah, but both both Greenwood starting ahead of Sancho in the opening games of the season, but also I think if you look back at the first 18 months of Greenwood's career, even if he's been having a good game, he's always been the first attacker to be brought off, no matter how the others are playing and how he's doing, partly because of protection, partly because of fitness, but because he's young. And that at his early days, of course, as you say, but that's not yeah, happening yeah. anymore. Yeah, I think um, it seems like there's more trust in Greenwood now. Well, three goals and three games. He's he's reliable. I think he's more reliable. His all round games improved. I think there used to be times where, especially in the 2019-20 season, where he was scoring a lot of goals. But if he wasn't scoring, he wasn't impacting the game too much elsewhere. Whereas I think he's a lot more well rounded, and I think that can help on the right flank. He's I've I've been impressed. There was in pre season as well where. I've been impressed with um, how he's adapted, progressing the ball, maybe taking a bit, a few more risks on the ball. Since he's came into the first team, he's always been quite, uh, he's had good pass completion rates. He's not turned over the ball too many times in comparison to like maybe when Rashford came on the scene. He's, I think Greenwood is, he's got a bit more, um, he knows when to pass the ball off, but I think now he's beginning to take a few more risks you see for the for Jesse Lingard's opener against QPR, I think he, he came in from the left-hand side and then fired a ball into Palestri's feet. And uh, yeah. there was another one um, against, was it? I think it was against QPR as well, where he sent um, Alanga through um, on goal. He didn't finish it, unfortunately, but there's just some more risky passes through, from him where I think he's getting a bit more confidence on the ball. So yeah, yeah I think all things considered... Um, more well-rounded, everything like that. I think he doesn't necessarily suit the right-hand side more, but I think he can impact play just as much as he does up front. And also, I think when you have two strikers of the ability of Edison Cavani and Cristiano Ronaldo, 
I don't think Greenwood's going to mind <laughs> going to mind uh, playing off that right. Yeah, absolutely not. And it helps being two-footed as well in a big way. Completely. Yeah. Right, we'll speak to you in a few weeks, Shane. What about we're, we're, we'll find out as, as the games go on. There's plenty of games coming up. It's an absolutely mental schedule again after a quiet first month, but nice to have you on. Cheers, mate. Thank you. Okay, Jack, we've got a couple of decent chunky sized questions to discuss, uh, that aren't exactly United related for now. The first being given it's the international break. I saw this question raised on Twitter during the week, uh, with the suggestions of a two year World Cup. Well, not two-year World Cup, but a World Cup every two years, in fact, that Arsene Wenger's proposing amongst other people, uh, which is, seems to be getting loads of support from FIFA and from various federations, but not from UEFA and lots of people within European football who oppose it. There are certainly arguments on, on two sides. I massively oppose it, but that's not the argument we're going to have. Um, the argument is, would the football calendar be better if it was a eight month block for clubs, three for internationals and a month's break? Um, obviously there are, there are points to be raised on each side, but it's an interesting one because the Premier League had only just returned three games all a week apart, no midweek matches. And then suddenly it all comes to a halt and we go into three crammed in international games and then suddenly there's all these games that come in and the players are tired injuries start to come and um, I'm th- I think it would be a, a decent idea for both that reason to allow momentum of the season to continue to stop us having to stop all the time for clubs and also the reason of international football possibly being better with kind of three month long training camps people working together a lot more and things maybe improving on that front as well yeah, it's an intriguing one, to be honest. I, I, th- I think it, it makes quite a lot of sense. It does help to sort of get over some of those issues. Like I was watching Gary Neville and Roy Keane's interview on the Gary Neville's YouTube channel the other day. And, you know, Roy, there was something that Roy Keane said that, and alongside Gary Neville, that both of them have done assistant management roles for Ireland and England, respectively. And they both said that, you know, the coaching aspect of it is is almost a, a joke a lot of the time because you just have so so little time with the players it's almost impossible to to do much. So, I mean, I think it does make some sense. It would help to put more focus on the internationals. And I think one of the issues with the internationals is that you just lose the context so much of around any game. You know, England have just pl- played at Andorra last night. And it, unless you're a sort of a diehard football fan, it's, it's difficult to understand what that game really means because it's been, you know, this is the, the what second or third set of World Cup qualifiers. We've just had the Euros. So, Everyone's sort of still attuned to the Euros, but now we're suddenly playing to qualify for a different competition that's still a year away. It is difficult to sort of understand what the context is of that. And they've obviously brought in the Nations League, which I think has helped to add a little bit more spice to international games. But it's just tough if you're the kind of person, I think this goes for a lot of people, especially in England, speaking from what I know, like there's a lot of people that, you know, will get behind behind the England team, but don't really follow football outside of that. So for those kind of fans, if you could have all the games in one time and you see the table changing it every week as games are played, you know, when England play Andorra and then Poland and then whoever else, and you see the table changing constantly, I think that makes it a lot easier to follow, a lot easier to, to sort of gain that context of the games that are being played. Yeah, the context is an interesting point as well because I think there's so many good stories within international football. And I think we're in the privileged position of supporting what is if not the biggest club in the world, then one of the top three. And so there's, we, we know every story about Manchester United because there's always coverage for it. And also there's kind of, 
we know we're at the top of the game, basically, in terms of coverage, not necessarily in terms of quality or, or morality or whatever. Um, but th- there are these amazing stories in international football. And I think we all go on about like the, the global game and how amazing it is and how popular football is around the world. But in truth, most of our attention is focused on England and Europe, at least. Uh, sometimes we delve into stories about South America. Sometimes we hear about stuff from Major League Soccer. Sometimes we hear about stuff from the Africa Cup of Nations and sometimes from the Asian Champions League, but rarely. International football has these amazing stories of whether it's big nations or small nations who are defying the odds or beginning to start their football journey or developing their football journey like India and China. There are amazing football stories and they so often get missed because for a lot of us, me included, we use the international break as kind of a time to switch off from football. So you can have the arguments about the calendar, but I think the context is important because you have a three month international break and then suddenly you will start to get that attention given to what we call the global game. But in truth is only in in terms of media coverage, isn't really the global game. The global game is true in terms of playing, but not in terms of our attention. Um, So I think, I think that'd be a really interesting way to do it. And on, on the other point of your point about fans who follow England in major tournaments, the only concern there is if you begin to make uh, international football a kind of a three month period, then you don't have that kind of two week intense, four week even, four week intense hit of it where the whole country's behind it, then maybe the tournaments become less special. It's the only concern. But I think, again, again, it's back down to context, though. The tournaments, I don't think the tournaments are necessarily only special because they take place over such a short, short space of time. It's all about the context. It's because everyone in the world knows the World Cup and the Euros are the pinnacle. And I think that is, that is what makes everyone so invested in it. And ultimately, people are going to be entertained by a higher quality of football. And yeah. I think that is really what you need to be striving for. And I don't think there's any doubt that, you know, if you give Gareth Southgate three months with this England team rather than three days, as he had before our first game of this international break against Hungary, then, you know, that's going to lead to a better standard of football. It, it has to. It allows the players to gel together. It gives the coaches time to set up better systems rather than just sort of throwing 11 players out on the pitch and say, just, you know, do your thing. And I, I, I mean, to me, I think it it makes sense that you would, try and maximise the talent that there is in international football and make those games as high quality as possible. Yeah. I think that's a lot of the reason, you know, especially for people who do follow a Premier League club or, or any other league who follow a club closely. I think that is a big reason why people don't really follow international football because I go back to England-Andorra. I didn't even bother watching the England-Andorra game because I don't want to see England players you know, just kicking a ball around the back and having a few chances for, for 90 minutes because it's just not a very good standard of football. Um, and I think if you could elevate that, allow the coaches to have more time, give, make it almost more like a club, it, it, albeit in a shorter, shorter space of time, you know, I think that would have a lot of positives for the the, the football that we're actually going to end up watching. And the other, the other thing is we all know over the summer how sort of antsy we get for football to return. You know, you start getting excited about a pre-season game with United play, yeah. you know, Salford City or whoever it might be. And I think over the summer, if you put all of the international football in over the summer when there isn't any club football, kind of by default, 
those those real diehard football fans will end up watching more international games yeah. simply because there yeah. isn't any other football on. I feel like I can forego watching England for these two weeks because I know that, you know, Man United are going to come back in five days. Yeah. I I think there's loads of benefits it brings as well. It, you, you could, I think you'd then perhaps see a secondary level of international football come about where B teams become important again and you have kind of that uh, players would be become better developed because you'd have to have a wider pool over three months because you'd want to be able to see the the, the, the wider array of talent, um, make sure you're not missing out on anything. But I think one of the key arguments is football's one of the only sports where the international game is superseded by the club game. Rugby, cricket, well, team games, team sports that is, but rugby and cricket, England's other two main sports thing we could say the international game is so much more important than the club game and I'm not saying it, it should necessarily be the pinnacle of, of football I'm a United fan who probably supports United more than England even though I love watching England at international tournaments and um, you could have found me with a tear in my eye back in July when we lost to Italy but I think the international game was the most important part of football way back in the late 1800s when it was beginning and through through the early 1900s as well. And I, th- I think, I don't understand why it's, uh, uh, why other than the tournaments, which come about every two years, why it's kind of put down. I think there should be more emphasis on it um, because it, it can be brilliant. Um, it really can. We should move on. We've got another big question from Michael Byatt's uh, one of our patrons who says uh, a breakdown of the 2009 Champions League final squad against the current squad would be nice for you to talk about during the international break because obviously Cristiano Ronaldo would be in both. He says, other than Ronaldo and Bruno, who in this team gets into that lineup? I was thinking about this and if we take, if I quickly remind you of the 2009 team, uh, I'm taking the team that started the final. So it's not it's not perfectly representative of that United squad, but it was Van der Sar, O'Shea, Ferdinand, Vidic, Evra, Park, Carrick, Anderson, Giggs, Rooney, Ronaldo. It's pretty representative of the season, not perfectly, but pretty much there. I think the goalkeepers are a fairly simple one, Jack. I mean, I, I thought this was, I, I think this is somewhat close. I think I, if you'd have asked me this a few years ago, I would have put De Gea in there, but given what we've seen from De Gea in the last few years, I would take Van der Sar. Yeah. I just, I, have you ever trusted a goalkeeper more than Edward van der Sar? No. The guy, it, it, just, it didn't matter what you, what part of the game he had to do. You just, they, you never felt even a, a slight bit of nerves with van der Sar and goal. It was, it was such a nice time to be a United fan. And to be fair, it going statistically, he kept 14 clean sheets in a row. So that does, does help his argument. Um, in defence, is a, is a tricky one actually because I don't think it's quite so clear I think so the season before Wes Brown played it right back he assisted Ronaldo in the Champions League final in Moscow with a, a great cross and he did that pretty often throughout the season Gary Neville was injured and then out of the squad pretty often in the in 2009 John O'Shea took it more when Brown started getting injured Yeah, I think I think I would. I don't think either of them. I mean, John O'Shea was a very underrated footballer, but I don't think either Wan Bissaka or John O'Shea are going to be huge parts of the attacking unit. And I think I'd trust Wan Bissaka defensively more than O'Shea. Yeah, I think so. 
I would say he was a great player, but right back wasn't his one position. Whereas Wan Bissaka yeah. is, is his, his lack of pace. Real and Vidic really exposed at right back. Yeah, yeah. Real and Vidic are pretty. I mean, other the Ferdinand and Vidic getting over pretty much anyone in in the history of football. So. Varane and Maguire yeah. would be fantastic backups, but unfortunately they can't. That, that set of four four players would be pretty pretty immense, but I think Rio and Fidic take that one pretty comfortably. I'd be interested actually just to to think if at what point, say a Maguire, let's say he keeps playing how he has the last year for another sort of four or five years at United, if he if he ever sort of gets close to that level, because to me, I, I think I think Maguire's brilliance has almost been slightly underrated in the last year or so. And I, you know, I'm not would not put him anywhere near this team over Ferdinand or Vidic. But it's just interesting to sort of think, you know, wh- whether he could eventually sort of be talked about in that way. Yeah, you were talking about that, and I just opened a tweet where he's done an interview with Harry Panera. <laughs> so you were making a serious point of um, a, a seriously a good point as well. That yeah, I think I think it will take another couple of years. But the players get those reputations after yeah. a couple of years of consistency, and rightly so. Um, but I just saw a, a quote from him in this Harry Panera interview where he says, I think winning all the headers and scoring the goal in the World Cup is the one that caused people to say my head is massive. But for the size of my body, I'd say it's definitely in proportion. <laughs> Which is, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, strange thing for a footballer to have to say. But there we go. Uh, at left back, Patrice Evra over Luke Shaw. It's very close, but I'd go with Evra for the reason we've kind of just said of consistency. And Shaw's been brilliant for 18 months, but Evra was brilliant for how how many years? Seven or eight. I think Shaw's probably more reliable defensively, but Evra even better than Shaw going forward. Evra definitely wins the longevity battle. I, I mean, in terms of who, who was playing at a higher level, I think I'd go Shaw on the on the evidence of the last six months. I think Shaw has been playing better than Evra was at that point in his career. But in terms of who was a better Man United player, is Evra. But I think on a one one game basis, I would take yeah. Shaw at the moment. Yeah, I think we have to go one game because the longevity. It's not asking who's the bigger United legend. I guess it's saying if if we had to play that final again. Intra- maybe an interesting point is if we ha- if we were playing against that Barcelona side, who would you want, Shaw or Evra? And I think you'd probably want Shaw. Yep, I would take Shaw. Okay. And again, you'd probably want Wan-Bissaka or Voshe as well. Yeah. So, yeah, that works. Midfield, a little difficult because the two teams played different formations. So United's was still somewhat a 4-4-2 with Park and Giggs wide, Carrick and Anderson centrally uh, going, uh, not just in this game, but over the season. You could also have a front three. That 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 <laughs> It's hard to tell from that team because it could go a number of ways yeah. but if we're thinking about the front six 2009 was Park Carrick Anderson Giggs Rooney Ronaldo 2021 would be McTominay Fred and at the moment with Rashford injured would be McTominay Fred Sancho Bruno Pogba Ronaldo obviously Ronaldo is the common denominator there I would take Carrick and Giggs from 2009 I'd take Bruno and Pogba from 2021 uh, and Ronaldo would be my first five. The sixth is to be decided would be Rooney. See, what's hard about this is that we're going off the 2009 Champions League final team, but 
you forget that on the bench, we then also had Paul Scholes to come in in midfield, Carlos yeah. Tevez and Dimitar Berbatov. Yeah, yeah. So I think if we're taking the whole squad, it, it's a very different conversation. I think out of the six that played in the Champions League final and then the six that you mentioned, I'd go probably, yeah, Carrick and Giggs in midfield, then the three of... See, that's where it becomes true. Maybe you go... Yeah, I guess you would go Bruno Pogba, Ronaldo Rooney. I don't really think there's much argument. I went... um, Mine would be Carrick sitting deep, Giggs slightly... uh, Giggs and Pogba as two eights. Giggs on the left, Pogba on the right, Bruno in front, and Rooney and Ronaldo in a slightly strange four... Well, it kind of be a four one two one two, which which would be really strange for United because it would, especially for a Fergie team, because it wouldn't have any wingers. Yeah, and that would be completely unorthodox. So I probably, I seriously, I wouldn't go that. But if you're just picking the the the, the pick of the bunch out of those two teams, I think that would be it. But in terms of a more general point, you're not putting that many of the current team in. Which isn't surprising, but I think that's kind of that's kind of what Michael was getting at. Where where are United now compared to that 2019? Yeah, and I, the truth is, I don't think we're not. not I don't think close. we're putting that many players into the team. But I also don't think, I don't think there are that many positions where the current team is, you know, massively behind. Too far off. You midfield know, is, is yeah, mid, yeah, midfield. Of course, you know, Carrick's goals, gigs. You know, even Anderson yeah. would probably have a, a shout against Fred and McTominay. You know, like that is a, a, an area where this team cannot compete. But in all the other yeah. positions, you know, we sort of went quickly over goalkeeper, two centre-backs, you know, Rooney, Ronaldo, and then you have Tevez and Berbatov, obviously. Like we, they were no-brainers, really. But they were no-brainers. But at the same time, the, the alternatives in this team aren't that far behind. You know, Maguire, Varane, neither of them are getting over Vidic or Ferdinand. But... It's not like it's a huge step down. Same thing with the forwards, you know, Rooney, Ronaldo, let's say we put Tevez in there as well. Those three, as opposed to Rashford, current Ronaldo and Sancho, again, I don't think there's any argument about any of those positions, but it's not as if we're, you know, taking a huge step down in any of those positions. So We're a tier below. Yeah, but it is only sort of one tier, I would say. On yeah, paper, at yeah, least. I the agree. difference is, is the, the depth, again, in specific areas of the pitch. The, the forward depth in this current squad is good, but, you know, you look at this this old squad, again, you know, you've got Johnny Evans, Raphael on the bench, relatively reliable options. You've got the talent of Berbatov, Nani, Skulls, Tevez to, this to bring is, on. That's the difference. Yeah. I also think that from a starting eleven point of view, this is the kind of, our team now is the kind of team that will be beaten by 2009 United in a quarter or semi-final. Because of the experience or because of the way we, the, the sort of tactically, the way that we set up? Tactically, uh, experience and also quality. I think our, I th- I think our team is, I think that United team, that, that our United team now in 2000, it's obviously you can't really compare eras, but talking relative quality to the time, it's kind of a quarterfinal, semifinal. I know I've said, I know I've predicted us to win the Champions League stupidly in our season preview, but I'm saying that is possible, but I think we're kind of a core. We should be getting to the Champions League quarter or semi-finals, but if you get knocked out there by someone, then that's kind of a, a, a decent indicator of United's quality. We should move on to 
to the Newcastle game though. Um, but thank you, Michael, for your question. Um, I'd love to hear from people on Twitter, by the way, on this this question of how far, on paper at least, you know, we're, I don't think in, either of us are getting anywhere close to saying this team is like this 2008-2009 sort of era, but I think it's an interesting yeah. exercise on, on paper to sort of look at, at that team and, and think it's, it doesn't look that far off. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, tweet in at UTD Weekly Pod. That's POD at the end now. If we get any interesting ones, we'll talk about them next week as well. Um, we might have a lot to talk about next week because Newcastle <laughs> could be a fantastic occasion. It really could. The, we spoke about the anticipation of the Leeds game and, well, it's all happening again, maybe to an even bigger extent. Tickets are going for thousands of pounds. I'm very thankful that I uh, renewed my season ticket now, um, which has re- taken away all these stresses and worries. But Ronaldo potentially making his second debut. It would all be a big letdown if he doesn't. But the atmosphere should be just incredible. Saturday, 3pm is the perfect time for a football game. It's not on TV in England, which adds another element to it. But you just... I mean, Ronaldo's come in and apparently he's already telling Bruno Fernandes to tell the rest of the team that he wants to win the title and that they should be ready to do that. And that is, it doesn't take much to please us, does it? But that that does please us. Yeah, I mean, we've talked so many times in the past on this podcast just about the fact that this team, or A, that we just are desperate to see Oli win a trophy of some kind just because that moment would be so special. But also that this team is is one of the most likeable United teams we can remember and that seeing so many of these players, you know, I sort of go through this this group of players and think almost every single one, like, oh, I would love to see him win a trophy. Oh, I'd love to yeah, see him win yeah. a trophy. You know, I feel like almost every player I have that with. And then now with Ronaldo returning, I mean, that's just gone up another level. And I mean, it's just special, isn't it? These are, regardless of, of how this transfer, how this season pans out, like you've got to savor these kind of moments because these are special days, I think, to be a United fan. It's very rare in football that you get this sort of uh, amazing storyline actually sort of coming to to fruition. And yeah, I mean, Old Trafford is going to be bouncing. I'm interested to see whether Ronaldo will start or if Solskjaer will hold him on the bench. And I'm, I'm sort of torn on which one of those I I, I want, because I think in terms of the reception, I almost want him on the bench to see uh, that, no, that I want moment him to... when he comes on. But for the game, I want him to start. No, because he, he stands at the back of the, the team, doesn't he? I want to, because I, I, I sit just to the left behind the tunnel and I want to watch United walk out and see Ronaldo seven at the back just this imposing <laughs> figure again so for the maybe five percent of Old Trafford that's it <laughs> you want him to start <laughs> yeah but also I just want that that obviously the, the noise will be amazing whether he starts or not but just to see United come out with Ronaldo in the team again would be obviously if he comes off the bench it's incredible but there's something about him. Imagine if you're a Newcastle United player and you see Ronaldo in the tunnel lining up. Yeah. To build on I think, the I, I think either way, like, I reckon Ronaldo, as long as we're winning the game, will either come on or off. Like I think if we're say yeah. two, three, no up with 10 minutes to go, I reckon he'll be subbed so that he can sort of have that moment, that reception. It's, it's a very classic things that managers often do when you have a new side in. And I think for Ronaldo's sake and for the team and for the crowd, like it, w- it would be lovely to have that one individual moment that is just his and it's, it's him and he gets that adoration from, from the fans and the fans have that moment with him back. Yeah. I mean, hopefully I would love him to start and just sort of, I just want to see as much of him as possible really in a United shirt that that's really where there is. I feel like a, a little kid again, to be honest, just how 
mm-hmm. excited and giddy I am for, for the next game. I think it's done that to, to every United fan. It'd be a shame if we lost, wouldn't it? Yeah, you know, I was I was actually ready to come on this episode and wax lyrical about how excited I am and how great the occasion's going to be and then say that Newcastle are going to win 2-1. <laughs> Is that your prediction? Uh, not my official, but that, that's my I don't want to be sad prediction. Um, <laughs> yeah, but I think it's... my official prediction will be a bit more optimistic and say three, we'll, we'll say 3-1, but United will go a goal down. And then a Ronaldo hat-trick. <laughs> We can hope. In, in, interestingly, I was checking this for, for work the other day. The team we've scored, I, I, in fact, I think I was checking it after the Bruno Fernandes hat-trick against Leeds. The team we've scored the most hat-tricks against is Burnley with 12, but second on that list is Newcastle with 10, one of whom was Cristiano Ronaldo in his only hat-trick for United back in January or February, start of the year. And I can't even name you the year, either 2008 or 2009 which I'm aware is very vague, but one of those years in one of those months was Ronaldo's only hat-trick against Newcastle. Um, I think that was away from home, if I remember correctly. Um, but yeah, so another hat-trick and we, we've scored plenty of hat-tricks against Newcastle, so another one for Ronaldo would be nice. But is that asking too much? Probably, yeah. We've had after. a lot of special moments against Newcastle down the years. I also always will never, ever forget, I think it, it might have been 2005, when Rooney scored that unbelievable volley yeah. against Newcastle as well, when he was complaining yeah. to the ref and he just smashes it in the top corner. It's one of my favourite yeah. time United goals. I feel like we've had, I mean, we've had our fair share of really bad moments against Newcastle as well, but I feel like we've had some, some special moments against them down the years. And in fact, the last two games away, not away, two of the, two, two of the nice moments of the last couple of seasons have been against Newcastle. First on Boxing Day, not the most recent one, but the one before. I remember sitting in the pub and watching a 18-year-old Mason Greenwood score twice against Newcastle, I think. I think I remember that right. Possibly only scored one, but that was brilliant. And I just, it was it was when Greenwood was only beginning to come into the team and it was fantastic. And I just loved, loved watching that. And last season away at St. James's Park was a, a, a thumping win and we scored that unbelievable yeah. goal. Those last combination. 10 minutes were, were great to watch. Yeah with Mata, Van der Beek, Bruno and Rashford and incredible finish and an incredible move. So yeah, got some, we've got, we've got those happy memories, but also we've had some bad draws and, and bad defeats to them in recent years. Uh, yeah. So I'll never a, a forget that 3-0 bag. loss to them. Uh, I think it must yeah. have been 2012, I think when Tim, it was yeah. when Newcastle just, they were, they were very effective, but they just, it was Tim Krul hoofing it to Denver Bar and Papi Cissé and just. Pardew ball. Yeah, yeah, and we just got absolutely destroyed by them that that in at St James's Park. Yeah. And we obviously had the, the David Ginola chip way back in the nineties as well. We've had some some great but also some really bad moments against them. Yeah. And on that note, we're expecting a mixed bag on, on Saturday, <laughs> but hopefully hopefully most of it will be good. But it, it should be incredible. And if you're lucky enough to be going like I am, then enjoy yourself. If you're not in the UK and you can watch it in a bar somewhere enjoy yourself as well if you're in the UK I hope you manage to tune into Five Live or find other means of watching it and enjoy it as well for more from us throughout the week you can find Jack on Twitter at at UTD Tate T-A-I-T and you can find me on Twitter at Harry Robinson 64 and the podcast itself at UTD Weekly Pod that's P-O-D at the end there right we'll be back next week hopefully speaking of a Ronaldo hat trick at home on his return uh, to Manchester United if not we'll still probably be happy but have a great week goodbye
Social Podcast Network.